0: In London, this is The Economist. You're listening to Tasting Menu, a cornucopia of the biggest, the juiciest, and some of the strangest stories from across the week's coverage. I'm Lane Green, language columnist for The Economist. And on your menu, Donald Trump tries to trump Davos, a chilly forecast for winter sports, why New York's hipsters are suffering from a lack of guac, and a tribute to France's greatest chef. But to start, the next war was our cover line this week. The last quarter century has seen more than its fair share of war in Central Africa, Eastern Europe, and the Middle East. But the prospect of war between great, that is to say, nuclear powers, has been unimaginable. Now, with the global balance of power shifting and an explosion of new technologies, our cover leader declared that it is time to think the unthinkable. The
2: world is not yet prepared for it to become reality. Last week, the Pentagon issued a new national defence strategy that put China and Russia above jihadism as the main threat to America. This week, the chief of Britain's general staff warned of a Russian attack. Even now, America and North Korea are perilously close to a conflict that risks dragging in China or escalating into nuclear catastrophe. This is not the plot of a Cold War novel or of a James Bond film. This is real. The pressing danger is of war on the Korean Peninsula, perhaps this year. Donald Trump has vowed to prevent Kim Jong-un, North Korea's leader, from being able to strike America with nuclear-armed ballistic missiles, a capability that recent tests suggest he may have within months, if not already. Even a limited attack could trigger all-out war. Analysts reckon that North Korean artillery can bombard Seoul, the South Korean capital, with 10,000 rounds a minute. Drones, midget submarines, and tunnelling commandos could deploy biological, chemical, and even nuclear weapons.
0: And though all eyes are on the powder keg of the Korean peninsula, there may be even
2: bigger ones elsewhere. Three decades of unprecedented economic growth have provided China with the wealth to transform its armed forces and, given its leaders the sense that their moment has come. Russia, paradoxically, needs to assert itself now because it is in long-term decline. Its leaders have spent heavily to restore Russia's hard power and they are willing to take risks to prove they deserve respect and a seat at the table. Territorial
0: disputes in the South China Sea and Eastern Europe are the first signs of a potential spark.
2: If America allows China and Russia to establish regional hegemonies, either consciously or because its politics are too dysfunctional to muster a response, it will have given them a green light to pursue their interests by brute force. When that was last tried, the result was the First World War. So
0: what is to be done? We argued that the greatest responsibility lies with America.
2: Almost 20 years of strategic drift has played into the hands of Russia and China. George W. Bush's unsuccessful wars were a distraction and sap support at home for America's global role. Barack Obama pursued a foreign policy of retrenchment and was openly skeptical about the value of hard power. It is as if Mr. Trump wants America to give up defending the system it created and to join Russia and China as just another truculent revisionist power instead. To learn more about what America and the international
0: community can do to diminish the threat of the next great war, you can find The Economist on all good newsstands or go to subscription.economist.com to get us through your letterbox or inbox every week. Come in from the cold now for a tour of the best of Economist radio this week. And with relief, we start with the astonishing power of a new technology to save life. The liver accounts for 20% of all organ donations. Until now organs have had to be stored on ice. The metra, which means womb in Greek, may look a little like a cool box, but the organs it transports are warm. This means they can survive for much longer, with a much higher chance of being accepted by the recipient's body. Natasha Loder, our healthcare correspondent, came on our Babbage podcast to tell us more.
3: So essentially what this box does is it it keeps the liver alive, and what's really incredibly cool about it is that Because the device is constantly monitoring the function of the liver and sort of reporting that back, um, and it's displayed in a graphical user interface on the front of the box, when it arrives um, for transplant, the surgeons can look at the interface and see how the uh, liver has been functioning over the previous 5, 10, 12 hours. And so you know exactly what's in the box.
0: Subscribe to Babbage for the latest news on what's cooking in science and technology. It's published every Wednesday. Every January, the world's great and good are transplanted into the usually sleepy heart of Davos in the Swiss Alps for the World Economic Forum. Our editor-in-chief, Zanny Minton bedos spoke to Anne McElvoy, the head of Economist Radio, in the temporarily glitzy Frozen Heights. Last year, Xi Jinping was the name on everyone's lips, lauded as the hero of globalization. This year's Davos pinup was Emmanuel Macron.
4: The rock star of Europe and, in some ways, the rock star of the global elite right now is Emmanuel Macron. I mean, I was outside the hall when he came to give his address. It was absolutely buzzing. It was as though 17, you know, top Hollywood people had arrived. Everyone desperate to get a picture of him, everyone even to see him. And he's quite short, as you know, so that wasn't so easy. He goes on stage. He speaks flawlessly, switching from English to French for a very long time. And someone said to me afterwards it was a kind of a wonk fest, you know. He gives endless policy proposals. He is Davos Man's, you know, poster boy, if you will.
0: But the main attraction was undoubtedly the visit of Donald Trump, who addressed the forum on Friday. But why was the evangelist of America First at the Shrine of Globalization?
4: It's interesting. I think he's partly here to brag. You know, the world economy is in great shape. The U.S. economy is in great shape. The stock market's are hitting record highs. I think he can't resist the idea of coming to tell these globalists, look, my America first has led, in his view, to this extraordinary boom, and he wants to show off. And I think beyond that, he may well start trying to convince the world that America first may not mean America alone.
0: And you can hear the rest of that rather riotous discussion in The Economist Asks, Will Trump Trump Davos? plus our reactions to Mr. Trump's speech in The Week Ahead. We stay among the snowy peaks now, but are they perhaps beginning to look a little bald? As Pyeongchang warms up for the Winter Olympics, Anton LaGuardia, our deputy foreign editor, had a chilly forecast for winter sports.
1: I have skied on occasion, especially as a a child growing up uh, in Italy. And you recently went back. So last summer, I went to the Dolomites, this place, this glacier called the Marmolada Glacier, which is a wonderful place set uh, among the wonderful mountains of the Dolomites. And this was a place that, until about... uh, uh, ten years ago, was a place where you could go summer skiing. It was a glacier, so you could, you know, ski in a t-shirt and a pair of shorts. And as a kid, you know, I had gone there. I went back this summer, and there was just water streaming down this glacier. So, you know, anybody who spends time in the mountains sees climate change happening before their eyes. You don't need video footage from the Antarctic to tell you that climate change is happening. You see it there and then. And that was a sort of striking, striking impact. Uh, in winter, we know that there is less snow we know that the seasons the seasons of natural snowfall are shorter and you also see it just in the in the sort of physical layout of ski slopes which is that there are a lot more snowmaking machines around
0: so savor those slopes while you can you can find economist radio on apple podcasts or your podcast app of choice and if you like what we do take a moment to rate us it means the world Among the catastrophic effects of climate change, there is one that may be particularly keenly felt in the breakfast bars of America's wealthiest cities. A piece in our business section explored why the country is suffering from a lack of guac.
3: Although New Yorkers are not renowned for their patience, they do not seem to mind waiting their turn for a fresh serving of avocado. At Avocaderia, which claims to be the world's first avocado bar in Brooklyn, Long queues stretch from the counter outward into a large food hall.
0: The pebbled green fruit has become part of the area's zeitgeist, the Zeitfrucht.
3: Imports have more than trebled over the past ten years, according to the Department of Agriculture. It estimates that the annual consumption of the average American has increased from about one pound or 0.5 kilograms in 1989 to more than seven pounds in 2016,
0: But how much is a mustachioed millennial on a fixed-gear bike willing to pay for their smashed avo on sourdough?
3: The wholesale price for a case of 48 avocados peaked at $83.75 in September, up from $34.45 a year before. Chipotle, a Mexican-themed restaurant chain, said that historically high avocado costs were a big reason why it posted disappointing financial results last year.
0: The pressures of erratic weather and soaring demand have left avo growers feeling green.
3: This is because avocados are a fussy plant to grow, says Mary Lou Arpeya of the University of California, Riverside. Salinity levels need to be just right, the slope of the terrain not too steep and temperatures stable. Erratic weather conditions can easily kill the crop.
0: But the confidence of the avocado eater is not easily smashed.
3: The founders of Avocadoria are already looking for new opportunities to expand after only having been in business for 10 months. Demand is huge, says one of them, Alessandro Biggi. On opening day, we actually ran out of avocados after just 90 minutes, and things haven't slowed down since.
0: It's not just in America... In 2016 alone, sales of Peruvian avocados to China surged by 3,700%. But there's a bigger craze among the young Chinese. Rap music. An article in our China section spat a verse. In his bawdy rap song, Christmas Eve, Wang Hao
5: switches from Chinese to English when praising his friends as motherfucking dope. Mr Wang's fans clearly think he is dope too. In September, the musician, who uses the stage name PG-1, was named as the joint winner of Rap of China, a hip-hop-themed talent show on iQiyi, a popular video streaming site. During its 12-episode run, the contest racked up a whopping 2.7 billion views, turning its contestants into household names.
0: It was a good day. Unfortunately, Mr Wang now finds he has 99 problems. In December, Mr Wang was accused of having an affair
5: with a married actress. In an ensuing online furore, the Communist Youth League tweeted an attack on Christmas Eve, a three-year-old track that web users had dug out of Mr Wang's back catalogue and that contained far coarser lyrics than anything he had aired on the show, including a reference to drug-taking. All
0: his records have since disappeared from music streaming services. The likeliest explanation seems to be that it ain't nothing but a G thing. G for government.
5: Forehand, China's media regulator, was reported to have circulated guidelines informing broadcasters that they should not feature hip-hop music or give airtime to people with questionable morals, undesirable ideologies, or, gasp, visible tattoos. It's tricky. The administration's musical tastes haven't
0: always been so narrow.
5: In 2014, the country's leader, Xi Jinping, said there was a place in China for imported art forms such as rap as long as they conveyed healthy and upbeat messages. In recent years, rap-style delivery has even been adopted by the party in its propaganda videos. Extensive consultation, joint contribution and shared benefits was a catchy line and a partially wrapped ditty released last year in praise of China's plans for state-led investment abroad, the Belt and Road Initiative. But recently, the country is no longer a gangster's paradise. Officials in Beijing are keen to promote Mandarin. They are not big fans of the local dialects that many rappers use. They also worry about the lewdness of some rap lyrics – a pretext that was used for blacklisting 120 rap songs in 2015, when members of one well-known group were slung into jail for several days, apparently for being too risqué. Despite his approval of sanitised cultural imports, Mr Xi is far keener on traditional Chinese arts.
0: But to the great relief of its hundreds of millions of fans, Rap of China is still slated for a second and doubtless successful series. And finally, this week's obituary served up a lyrical tribute to the chef of the century,
6: the Pope of Gastronomy, Paul Bocuse. In impish mood, Paul Bocuse would roll up the sleeve of his whites to reveal, on his left bicep, a tattoo of a Gallic cock crowing. An American GI had done it for him during the war, and it seemed just right for his subsequent career as France's most celebrated chef. This was a man who was called the Pope, even God, by lowlier meal makers, and whose death, said Emmanuel Macron, had chefs everywhere weeping in their kitchens. He was a man of large appetites. He was the most decorated of them all, and not simply with Michelin stars, of which his restaurant, l'Auberge du Pont de Collange, Paul Bocuse, near Lyon, had held three for over 50 years. To match his three stars, he had, for almost as long, three women, fairly harmoniously. His appetites were large. And though his
0: fame took him to the kitchens of Disney and Concord, he and his food were as Gallic as they
6: come. For what country was better provisioned than France? Cuisine Classique had become over-fussy, but its fundamentals, butter, cream and wine, were so magical that nothing could replace them. He signed on briefly to Nouvelle Cuisine, but in the end it bored him. Nothing on the plate, lots on the bill, was his conclusion. He was no fad follower, no fiddler. Molecular Cuisine, puff! Nitrogen, phew! Give him some sausage and a glass of good macon in the company of friends any day. I wonder if he would have had any patience for avocados. A good chef, like himself, worked and worked and worked by instinct, accepting that a recipe would be subtly different every time. And once it was done, the chef should leave the kitchen, greet the diners, present what he had made. He positively encouraged his cooks to open their own restaurants and was delighted to welcome 650 students each year to his chef's school at Eculi. In fact, his
0: greatest success was to take chefs from being the magicians behind the curtain to centre stage.
6: A chef's sense of his own importance began, he insisted, with the uniform, the calo, or the tall tuk, the immaculate white jacket and the apron, the clothes of his trade. That moment when, preparing for his entree en scène, he tied his apron ribbons round his capacious waist was the proudest part of all. And he might just have time, too, to roll up his sleeve, flash a smile, and cry, Cocorico! in case anyone doubted who and which country ruled the culinary world.
0: Who is your national culinary champion? Tell us by email to radio at economist.com or on Twitter at Economist Radio. You can find second helpings of everything you've sampled here online, and if you're still hungry, much more besides. In London, this is The Economist.